Hey, this is Dr. Diane Hamilton. I am the CEO of Tenera. If you're wanting to learn how to embrace change and navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, Dennis Giannuzzo. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Hey, welcome to the show, Leadership is Changing. What we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Leaders everywhere confront similar obstacles because people are people, but everywhere you go, leaders are overwhelmed, disrupted, and under pressure. They run from email to email, meeting to meeting. Many leaders are not changing quick enough, which means they run the risk of becoming irrelevant and being left behind. So perhaps the show is taking our listeners' leadership to another level by finding their balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today, and if we can get the leaders to step up and lead change, then they can inspire real change. Hey listeners, it's now time to adapt in our fast-moving world. Welcome to today's episode. Great to have you here with us. I've got a wonderful guest with me today. Her name is Dr. Diane Hamilton. She's the founder and CEO of Tenera, which is a consulting and media-based business. She's a nationally syndicated radio host, keynote speaker, and the former MBA program chair at Forbes School of Business. She's authored multiple books, which are required universities around the world. Diane is also, her work has been endorsed by some of the most respected names in leadership. Diane, a massive welcome to you. Thank you for having me here. I was really excited to be here. I've heard great things about your show. Oh, thank you. That's really cool. Hey, whereabouts are you in the world today? I am in lovely Arizona in the U.S. It's very warm here, and I get to enjoy it right now is the best time. You don't want to come here in the summer, but it's wonderful right now. I think I have been there around the summertime, and it's so hot. It's really bad. (laughs) Yeah. Whereabouts are you, though, exactly in Arizona? I'm at in a town called Paradise Valley, which is basically Scottsdale. If anybody's been to Arizona, there's the Camelback Mountain. I'm right near there. Oh, so my wife and I went to Arizona and we were in Scottsdale and we loved it. We're like, oh, if we move to the US, this could be an option for us because it'd be just a beautiful place and loved it. So, it's great. Yes. Yeah. I'm a native. I'm one of the few. You don't find too many. A lot of people here, get a lot of California people moving here right now, but you get everybody from everywhere. Yeah. A good friend of mine actually from Dallas uh, has just moved there. I don't know if it's Scottsdale, but um, you moved into the Arizona space. I think so. It's pretty good. Now, I've given our listeners a little bit of a background about you. Tell us a little bit more. Is there anything else you want to share about your background? Well, the good thing about just doing different things as you age, it teaches you something for something else. I mean, my job really is to learn things and share things, whether I do it through my show or through my teaching or my writing or my speaking or consulting, I get it all from, you know, some stuff I get, I learn from my show, from like my guests or I've, uh, my students often share wonderful stories in class, but a lot of my background is in sales. I started in different areas of sales. I sold everything from computer software in the eighties to pharmaceuticals for AstraZeneca for, I was with that company nearly 20 years. But uh, so a lot of that gave a lot of foundation to when I got into higher ed, just having real world experience was really helpful because sometimes, you know, you get people that all they've ever done is education and that can be problematic. So 
I love, I've worked in banking. I was an NAE in the subprime arena. I've been in real estate. So a lot of sales background, which got me interested in what makes people successful and what leads to performance. And so uh, when I went back to get my doctorate, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on emotional intelligence and its impact on sales performance. Wow. So, I, yeah, it was very fascinating. It was really great having Daniel Goldman on my show because we got to talk about that later. And so, you know, all these things kind of all work and to build on the next thing. And because I did do so much with assessments with the emotional intelligence research, it got me into interested in assessing things, which later I assessed curiosity and perception and some of the other assessments that I do now. Wow. Emotional intelligence, great, great topic. And you've had sound like really wonderful guests on your show as well. And you know how sometimes uh, in the new year, people sort of tend to have the word that they have for the year that they're going to follow. I go, oh, no, I'm not going to have one. I'm going to have several. But one of the words I have is being curious. And so you just mentioned about curiosity. And tell us a little bit more. What are you doing in that space around curiosity? I started to write a book years ago about curiosity. And then uh, because I'm so used to assessing everything, mm-hmm. I wanted to see where's the assessment that tells you what's stopping it. And what I found was there's a lot of assessments out there that would tell you if you had high or low or medium levels of curiosity. But what if you had low? And I'm like, well, that doesn't solve that problem, right? So I decided okay. I, I wanted to fix that. And so that's what got me interested in ass- learning the assessment that went along with my book. But I really found talking to people who were super curious sparked my interest in curiosity because I'd have all these leaders. I've had so many billionaires on my show and every one of them from, you know, would be just more curious than the next. And I thought, well, what's similar? And you kept seeing this endless, insatiable curiosity. And I wanted to put that same level of desire in my students. But to do that, you had to figure out what inhibits it. And so that's what I've researched in terms of curiosity and what inhibits it. But it ties into the work I do with perception with Dr. Maya Zelihich, which I think you've interviewed her, right? Yep. And who you've interviewed, I should say. And there's a lot that ties into just all aspects of soft skills in, in general. When I, I talk, when I think of curiosity, I often speak to groups about this and I liken it to baking a cake. Okay. So let's say you're going to bake a cake and you, <laughs> that's your end product you want, right? And so you have all these ingredients, you know, you need flour and eggs and oil, whatever it is, you mix it all together and you put it in the pan and you put it in the oven and you want cake, but you don't get cake if you don't turn on the oven, right? You get, you get goo. And so in the workplace, if our cake is productivity and sales, financial success, money, let's say money is our cake. To get cake, we know we're mixing together engagement and innovation and motivation. And we have all these things that we're mixing together, putting in the pan and putting in the oven. But if you don't turn on the oven, that spark of curiosity, no one gets cake. So that's my way of looking at curiosity. Oh, what a great way of, oh, yeah, that's very good. And if you do it really well, the cake's going to taste beautifully, huh? Um, or beautiful. <laughs> I like addition. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 it's very good. And so so the cake, yeah. And sometimes, you know, we can have a cake and taking that metaphor you just talked about there and bring it out of the oven and it looks good. And then all of a sudden it becomes a bit of a flop. I think there is a lot of leaders out there look good, smell good. But sometimes there's not enough substance within their cake or themselves, and sometimes they become a little bit of a flop. Well, before you ask that question, I want to add to that because Francesca Gino from Harvard was on my show, and we talked a little bit about that. And the um, the research that's out there on curiosity is that leaders often think they encourage it. 
But when you ask the employees if it actually is encouraged, <laughs> it's not anywhere near the same. And so, yes, that's the thing. It, with culture, it has to start at the top from the leaders. But if they don't emulate what they'd like, they can say, I mean, Enron had a code of ethics. It sounded good. But if they didn't follow it, what good is it? Mm. And that's what I was about to ask you was that, so what is the thing that sort of stops them from doing this curious thing and, and then actually getting the, the rest of the organization to do it? What, what stops leaders? Well, the thing that stops everybody is what I researched. And what I found was there's four things that inhibit curiosity. We can talk about curiosity specifically, or do you want to talk about leadership? Whatever you like, because I think curiosity actually helps leaders, right? So I think it should let's go there. Right. It helps everybody. Okay. Well, a lot of leaders don't build it into their core values of what they set for their goals, and then they don't emulate you know, what they want to see. But in general, what inhibits curiosity are four things. And I started out by putting a link uh, in LinkedIn, uh, asking uh, people, you know, what inhibits your curiosity? Why wouldn't you speak up in a meeting kind of questions? And out of most of them were very fear related things. So I was expecting to get a lot of fear based things. But after interviewing thousands of people and surveying thousands of people over all these years, we found there's four factors. And there's the acronym is FATE, F-A-T-E, which stands for fear, assumptions, which is basically the voice in your head, technology, which is over and underutilization of it, and environment, which is basically everybody you've ever had contact with. And these four things are the real core of what we need to work on. We talked about giving emotional intelligence tests and all this. And when I went through all the testing, learning how to give assessments, Mm -hmm. I, I became certified to do a lot of that. And it made me interested to get people certified to do this because it's so relevant. We can take all these assessments and put us into boxes, which sometimes is helpful for certain things. Like I love to get take the disc. It's fun. You learn a lot. You learn about what the opposite of what you you know appreciates. And same with Myers-Briggs. I even learn a lot from that, even though a lot of people might not appreciate that as a particular assessment. You do learn what you are not. And I think that that's important for empathy. But with this, it's more like an emotional intelligence assessment of what we work with people because we look at this is your level. This is where you can improve. Mm -hmm. And I think people need to know that because a lot of it is just they hadn't even thought of these things as holding them back. Because if you look at fear, think about how many leaders were told to say, don't come to me with problems unless you have solutions or whatever it is that (laughs) <laughs> we don't want whiners. We want, but let's say they know this problem, but they haven't been trained in the solution. You've just basically told people, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. Don't give me any input. And that could have been in three companies ago. It may not be in this leader's company. And you don't know what experiences they have had that makes them fearful of saying something. I had gone to a boss of mine once and you know he had asked me to do something, which I'd never been required to do in any job didn't have to. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. How do I do that? And he looked at me with such disgust and he said, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. So what does that do? That that tells people, lie to me, don't tell me, pretend you know things. I mean, there's all these things that come into people's minds when somebody reacts like that. Mm-hmm. Now, this guy wasn't a bad guy. He just had been taught to do that from his leaders, right? So leaders often emulate the past leaders. And I talk about this a lot in the Global Mentoring Network, which I'm a board member of. And and there's a big group that was created by Keith Kroc, who was the genius behind DocuSign and all that, that uh, he's done so much with Ariva and and he was undersecretary here in the United States. And he's he's put together this Global Mentoring Network. and, And we talk about, you know, what can we learn from all these other people? 
And for the fear part of it, sometimes leaders need to put themselves in a group of people that maybe they normally would fear looking stupid around. We have to do what we want from our people. We We have to ask the stupid question and point out that we're asking the stupid question so that they'll feel they can ask it and not feel inhibited, right? So fear is a huge thing. Assumptions is also a huge aspect because it leads to what we're thinking in our head. Oh, well, if I ask this question, they're going to make me the head of that committee and then they're not going to pay me. You know, (laughs) you know what I mean? We have, it's going to be too hard. I just learned that. I don't want to do it again. There's all these things that we think about. And then technology can be just, you might be the most wonderful mathematician in the world, but I've just only given you the calculator and you can, mm. you're great at this calculator, but you don't know the math behind it. So there's no foundation to make you be this great person. So we need to have over and under utilization of technology days, uh, days where we learn the foundations and la- learn how to use it and catch everybody up to the same points so that we're not lagging behind. And then environment, again, we need to know, it, you know, did our teachers say, I don't, I don't have time for this because I got to teach 35 other students. Did our family say you have to be a doctor because everybody else was a doctor? We have social media that if you don't get likes, you take your post down because you don't want to look below <laughs> like what you said. There's just so many aspects of this. So for me, this is a huge discussion about how to be innovative, how to be engaged, all the ingredients of the cake that everybody's trying to fix. And nobody knows that we're not turning on the oven. Oh, fascinating. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's so strong. So listeners, fate. And Diane's just shared a whole lot of different things here. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Now, Diane, how did you get into leadership? I got into it early in different ways. I I had a company where I would teach people how to use Windows when it first came out. Oh, wow. Seems so, so old to think about that now. And then later I led, you know, it was an MBA program chair in different at Forbes School of Business in different ways. I've but you know, I turned down most leadership positions when I was younger because my husband is a plastic surgeon and he couldn't move. And so it was very hard for me to take on most of the positions. When I got to the point where I was older and the kids were older and different things, I started to take on more and more things that I could do, but I still had to base out of Arizona, which was limiting to some extent. So that's why I was very interested interested in working virtually. And a lot of my businesses are, are virtual that now. And right. so that makes it a lot easier, but you're still leading and leading virtually has its unique <laughs> challenges. It does. Yeah. Leading virtually is, is, is really interesting as well. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now here's an interesting question for you. Now this person could be alive or from history. Who's your favorite leader and why? That's an interesting question, just because I'm drawn to somebody who I wouldn't even want to work for. There's a difference between who I'd want to read about and who I'd want to work for, I think, <laughs> because I'd love to read about Steve Jobs. I just found find him endlessly fascinating. And actually, I did talk to uh, Daniel Goldman about him on the show because I wanted to know what his opinion was of his emotional intelligence, you know, and he was saying he thought he was great at achievement, motivation and goal setting, which are parts of it. But he was horrible at empathy, right? Which is another part of it. So we can be good at some parts of emotional intelligence and not so great at others. For me to want to work for somebody, respect is important. And I don't see he would be very good at giving me much respect as an employee. I don't know. Just from what I've read, I've never met the guy. And now I, you know, of course you can't. But if people I've met who I would like to work for, Keith Kroc, I mentioned, Incredible from DocuSign. Doug Conant, I've interviewed him several times. He, he turned Campbell's soup around from their engagement was in the 
tank and he totally brought it around. He wrote 30,000 plus handwritten notes to everybody to really tie into that empathy area. So there's so many people have been on my show and I'm thinking, you know, it's really hard to just pick one, but I do love to read about Steve Jobs. He fascinates me. So if you sat on a park bench uh, with Steve Jobs, if you ever had that opportunity, if there was one question you wanted to ask him, what do you reckon you might ask him? Uh, you know, there's two different Steve Jobs. There's the Steve Jobs before he was fired, and <laughs> there's yeah. the Steve Jobs who came back. I think it'd be easier to ask the second Steve Jobs questions. I would like to know that from the second Steve Jobs what humbled him or what changed him and what he learned from that experience and what mm-hmm. he would have done differently. Yeah, that, that's a huge question. That's awesome. I, I'd love to uh, know that too. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, very good. Now, the show here, Diane, is called Leadership is Changing. Now, when I mentioned that title of the show or that saying, what does that mean to you? Leadership is changing. It means, well, you know, it's funny. One of my first speaking engagements was for Forbes, and they had me speak about the future of the workplace and what to expect. Ah. And it was based on generational differences. So I guess from early on, I was always looking at the changing workplace and what was going to be happening, not just for leaders, but in in general. I mean, we've seen more generations than ever before all working together, you know, so that was a big change. So change is just the only constant, right? We know that. I teach a lot of courses on leadership change. I've taught thousands of online courses now. I stopped counting after a thousand. (laughs) It's really high. And a lot of them are based on leadership change. And The thing is, we think that we're all up for this challenge. I had a lot of crisis readiness experts on my show and all this before COVID. And now we found out that maybe we weren't so prepared, right? So we think that we're ready for change until the real change happens. And so I think having foresight is the hugest thing. Anybody who's read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits knows the first habit is be proactive and being proactive is really having foresight and thinking and beginning with the end in mind and all the things that he wrote about in in his day. It was a a classic. And we need to get out of status quo thinking. For me, that's what I talk a lot about with curiosity. It's not really about asking a million questions or reading a million books. It's really a combination of things. And one of the biggest combination that in that combination, I should say, is status quo behaviors need to be looked at. Because just because we've done it right in the past, and mm-hmm. it worked great then, it doesn't mean it's going to work well in the future. Ask Kodak or Blockbuster or any of the companies who kept doing things that worked great in the past, right? So we've seen the research. We've seen the woman that goes into the doctor's office and they ring the bell and she's, you know, the people around her are, are actors and they just stand up and sit down every time the bell rings that she eventually stands up and sits down when the bell rings without knowing why. We're all standing up and sitting down and we don't know why for a lot of the things that we're doing. And I think we need to take a look at what things are we doing just because it worked in the past that maybe won't be working again in the future and be like Ben and Jerry's who when their ice cream is no longer successful they give it a burial on their website they have little headstones on one of their web pages that shows this flavor was great from this year to that year but we've celebrated it we think it was great for its time but we move on yep that's cool and I love what you say about the status quo and getting out of that because I think a lot of people today is that they a don't think and b they don't take time to think and c 
they would just follow others. And I'm like, and you're the, the person you're talking about standing up, sitting down and so forth. You're so right. And I think a lot of leaders need to actually do the thinking and actually get out of that status quo. Absolutely. And it's interesting how you said that we, you know, we don't, we thought we were ready from a crisis side of things, but then when it actually happened, we weren't. And, you know, that's not the last one. I think there'll be other things coming too in the future. And so are we ready for that as well? You're so right. What you're saying too is that change is constant. It's probably the only thing that's constant at the moment is change. And yeah, we need to really face that as uh, really important for us to think about that. Now, Diane, we've sort of been talking about leadership in general as we've been talking so far. But if we go and think about the actual leader, the individual uh, themselves, we're in a world today where technology is moving so fast, business is changing. From a social perspective, it's changing a lot as well. In this fast-paced changing, or fast-paced ever-changing world, what makes a leader successful today? I, For me, I think that leaders have to recognize that employees expect far more than they did in the past. COVID's really changed a lot of that, too, because people have seen that they've had more autonomy. They've known what it's like to not have to go into an office all the time. And I think we have to recognize that we have to meet the needs of what employees have set for a higher bar from us, right? And I think that, I want to make sure, ask me the question again. I want to make sure I'm answering. You, you want me to... So, so we're talking from a leader's perspective, right? So what does it mean to be, be successful as a leader in a fast-paced, right. ever-changing world? And, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's the employees. And that's actually the next question I was going to ask you is around employees' expectations of leaders too. If we can combine those two things and we thought, think about it, I think you're right around leaders recognize what employees... They're going to set us a higher bar right. for us as leaders to step up. But what else do you think that a leader might need to do in relation to themselves and around this fast-paced, ever-changing world? Well, I think that they need to get mentorship. I think you need to surround yourself with people who know more than you do. When I'm around Keith Crocker, any of the names I've mentioned earlier, they always have great boards that they've put together to support them. I was on the board of advisors for the DocuSign group, and I think there was 250 of us on there. And there was like all the CEOs of Donald's and Sony, and, you know, I mean, like, I don't wow. know. Who's who was of the room. You just walk around and go, wow. And he was able to learn something from every one of them. And I think as a leader, you need to do that. You need to not be the smartest person in the room because if you are, you're, you're not growing. And that's a huge problem. A lot of people want to be the smartest person. They want to feel like they know it all. And then, then yeah. they, as soon as you think you do, you're, you're dead. Yeah, I mean, there are a few people who actually think they want to be the smartest person in the room and they want to be feel good and so forth. And yeah, somebody has always said to me as a mentor of mine is if you are the smartest in the room, get a new room or get a new group. Yeah. Because, and that's more for me as an individual, you as an individual, but it's also right. for our teams and the people around us. Why? Because if we lift, we're going to lift, you know, like the tide lifts, all boats lift, right? And that's that saying out there. And if we can lift our, our skills, our capabilities, our experiences, it's going to be a lot better for everyone else. There's just, everybody's really team focused now too, you know, and there's, that, that's really important to get to know everybody on your team and understand you cannot relate to everybody in the same way. You have to change your focus based on that person's preferences for how they like to be spoken to, what things motivate them. I, I'm giving a big talk for LinkedIn, you know, and, and they, these big companies, they recognize that whether it's Verizon or Vardis, LinkedIn, any of these companies I talk to, they have put curiosity in their top core values and they create content that rewards employees for developing that. So I really think leaders need to work on developing their own level of curiosity, emulating that and rewarding others for doing the same. Yeah, very good. And when you say, when you said before, actually, around leaders recognizing employees are setting a 
the bar higher. What are they actually doing, these employees? If we're going to think about the next question around employees' expectations of leaders today, has it changed? What are employees, how, the, how are they setting that bar higher? What are they actually expecting from leaders? What are employees expecting from their leaders that's different? Yep. Well, they know they can job hop for one thing a lot more mm. now. In my day, you, you had less than two years at a company. You didn't ever tell anybody that. You know, it was like yep. a bad thing. Now it's like, hey, yeah. badge of honor. I've got all this different credibility. You know, I can remember going to a Forbes CMO summit years ago where they, what I found was really interesting that a lot of the good leaders would tell their employees, you know, if you need to go to get experience that you can't get here, we're fine with that. If you come back, we'll open arms to you and let you back, you know. And, and I thought, wow, that's something so different than in the past. Yeah. I think you have to recognize that employees, their high expectations are that they know they need all these different skills. And if you're not offering them, mm-hmm. if you're not offering the training, if you're not offering the cultural importance of it, they know they can get it somewhere else. They yep. know that other places are. So you have to be much more cognizant of what your competitors offer, what they're doing. And, you know, I know they're looking on the different websites to see how they're rating people yep. last or whatever they're looking at to see experience wise what's happening. It, it's like going to a doctor now. If you go to a doctor, you can go in there and know as much as he knows or she knows anymore because it's all on the internet. So they, you've got to recognize that these people are not just sitting home in a vacuum. They have resources. And if you want to keep the best, you have to be. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, oh, that's awesome. I like that last thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And you're right. I mean, people are they're actually upskilling themselves. They're actually understanding because they're curious. They're learning a lot more about things. And sorry, leaders, can't fake it anymore. People are going to find you out. And people actually will call you out nowadays. They will actually call you out. They've got the courage to do that nowadays and, and good on them, I think. I think it's a good thing for them to do that because, you know, we're going to have better leaders as a result of it, which is really good to see. Now, I'm just going to ask you, Diane, to get your crystal ball out here and let's start talking about the future. And um, when I actually say that is, where, where do you see leadership being in five? Years. I think that we're going to continue to focus on cultural importance. That last book I wrote with Dr. Maya Zelhich was about perception because I think in the next five years, we're going to see a lot more getting out of our confirmation biases and some of that kinds of thing, that kind of thing that, that keeps our culture back. I've had a lot of culture experts on my show. Dina Dwyer Owens was on, she wrote Values Inc. And one thing she would say in all of her meetings, she would say, does this tie into our core values and our culture, what we want? And if it doesn't, why are we talking about it? And, you know, I think we're going to see, you know, when we wrote about perception, we looked at it as a combination of IQ, EQ for emotional quotient, CQ for curiosity quotient, and CQ for cultural quotient as kind of a combination. Because I think perception is going to be a big part of what we look at when we're looking at a global setting. And one of the reasons I chose Maya and she chose me, but is because she's the global expert. I'm kind of the behavioral expert. And together we looked at this perception piece and we go, okay, so this is a process of what you go through when you are discussing and communicating. And, you know, you evaluate, you predict, you interpret and you correlate to come up with these conclusions. So, So we found it to be an epic process is the acronym for that. And we created the perception power index. And we did all the same kind of things as I did with curiosity, but for perception, because I think perception is a big part with the cultural component to it that you're going to see is coming 
going to come up a lot. And I think respect is going to come up a lot in the future. I mentioned that before, and I do a lot of work with respect because I think, you know, we know people don't leave companies, they leave leaders, they leave people and they leave for lack of respect. And that's one of the reasons, you know, the engagement numbers were so low. And that's one of the things I think leaders are going to be tasked with to show people more respect. Yeah. I love that word respect. And I think it's, we a lot of it say, or a lot of people say, you know, you just can't demand it, you have to earn it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that word respect takes a while to develop it, but within seconds can be lost. Oh, yeah. And it can be done in the sense of what we say or how we say it, what we do, and so forth. And if it's not being backed up properly, it can be a problem. Now, Diane, the book that you've just been talking about is it The Power of Perception? Is that the book title? Uh, the Power of Perception I wrote with Dr. Maya Zella-Hitch, and the other book was Cracking the Curiosity Code, which I wrote by myself. But they're both uh, behavioral, really important books, I think, for discussing cultural change in the modern times. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, cool. Sounds very exciting book. So listeners, we'll, we'll probably put those in the show notes as well, just so listeners can see that and, and pick up on that. Diane, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. If our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where should they go? Well, you can find everything on my website, which is just my name, drdianehamilton.com. And doctor is just D-R. So it's D-R-D-I-A-N-E-H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N.com. And you can follow me at Dr. Diane Hamilton on all the social media sites. Pretty easy. (laughs) Pretty, Pretty easy. That's good. Diane, once again, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Awesome. Hey, listeners, as leaders, we need to be curious, go away and think about that. But I'm going to challenge you on actually getting out of the status quo thinking. Have fun while you're doing that. Hey, listeners, what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown and unfamiliar territory. It's time to adapt in our fast moving world when leadership is changing. Look out for the episodes as they're being released. Download them. Have a listen. Put a review and a rating. Feel free to share them with your friends, your family, and your network. Hey, if there's any feedback you'd like to give me about the show, or if there's a question you have for the Ask Dennis Freestyle episode, then send me an email, dennis at leadingchangepartners.com. Hey, listeners, it's always a pleasure being with you. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world. 